Okay, we'd like to begin. As you well know, our goal for this series has been to understand the basic message of Tanakh, the 24 books of the Bible, the classic work that outsold all other books. We want to understand the basic philosophy of the biblical teachings, the overarching principle that percolates throughout the entire Tanakh. What drives this book forward? Why has it been so popular in the Jewish world, in the Christian world? What really makes it? What is the straw that mixes the biblical drink? Every literate Jew, every Jew that claims to understand anything about his religion, has to of course understand that here we are dealing with the key text of the Bible. Hundreds and thousands, if not ten thousands of books have been written about the Bible. In every which way, fashion, form. Whether narratively or halakhically, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of books have been written about this book. One can rightly say that it's the most impactful book on human history. When one thinks about the 1.8 billion Christians that have their source of inspiration from this book, or the 14 million Jews who, though numerically deficient in that sense, still know in terms of the personalities they've produced that have drawn inspiration from this book, producing great codes of law, morality, spirituality, all of that brings us back to the Bible. So what are the key words? One should be aware, of course, that a key word of the Bible would be Tikkun Olam. What's the primary message of the Bible? Tikkun Olam, to mend the world. We're here not simply just to enjoy the world, rather we have an obligation to mend the world, would be one. A second one might be Mashiach, the Messianic era. That when this happens, this will happen. When all people are sufficiently aware of the basic values of what Torah is all about, the entire Bible is all about, you're going to have an attempt at mending the world and bringing about the Mashiach. What does that all revolve around? The key term would be Salem and Elkin, which means divine image. Of course, all this we spoke about. Understanding that each person is created in the image of God, which means that you are infinitely potential. That potential has to be actualized. From potential to actualization. Infinite potential of every human being. No matter what the color, no matter what the wealth or appearance, that person is created in the divine image and therefore has to be treated with dignity and respect. Keyword. A further keyword would be Surah's basic message is one of justice and righteousness. That's what it's all about. The rest is commentary. Of course, you see that, as we have seen in the book of Bereshit, chapter 19, verse 18, God, in a, solilo- in a menoliquy, when he speaks to himself, soliloquy? So soliloquy. When he speaks to himself, and he speaks about Abraham, he speaks about Derech Hashem, which is Tzedakah, which is justice and righteousness. All that the Bible is really all about. And of course, there are negative models we should not go to worry about. Sodoma, Amora, Sodoma, Gomorrah, Amalek. These are the negative models that we have to root out. Or Sudan Hussein, if you will. These are the basic biblical ideas that one has to keep in mind. Of course, we have studied the basic biblical books of the prophets, all of whom emphasize and discuss this these ideas. Now we're about to discuss, of course, the writings. The writings are very different than the prophetic books. 
The prophetic books are, as we said, God's word to mankind. The writings are mankind's reaction to God's word. Completely different. They're not as influential, one would say, as the other biblical writings. Other biblical writings, what God wants of you. What is He challenging with you? The writings is how we respond to that message. And the first book of the writings is one known as Tehillim or Psalms, which of course is one of the most popular of biblical books. It's throughout all of our prayers. The Christian world celebrates this book, mainly because the most famous line in all of biblical teachings, made famous by the Christians, is the 22nd Psalm. Nobody knows it, but it's, Oh Lord, why have you forsaken me? Who said that word, that line? Yeshu on the cross. And of course it comes from Tehillim. So the most famous line is by the most famous Jew has been the leitmotif of Christianity. An irony of history. 1.8 billion Christians know that line because Yeshu said it on the cross. But it's a most famous Jew at the most famous moment in history which revolutionized and changed the world from the 22nd chapter of Tehillim which we'll come back to. What is Tehillim really all about? Tehillim is authored primarily by a King David from 1000 to 960 before the Common Era. He was in office as king for 40 years and he was what one might say the most poetic of souls. What does the poetic soul really do? What would you say to that? If you were a poetic soul, as opposed to a businessman, what does a businessman do when he sees an opportunity? He grabs it. He grabs it. What does a poetic soul do when he sees an opportunity? He creates. He creates. He responds. He emotionally. emotion emotionalizes about it. Excuse the word. He emotionalizes about it. He wants to preserve it for all of eternity. Now, if you're a businessman and you feel love, you want to figure out, how can I sell this feeling mass market? How am I going to do it? How am I going to create the pill that I'm going to make a lot of money doing that? Hallmark. Hallmark. They did a good job with that. What does a poet do? He wants to take that very precious feeling, death. He's overwhelmed by it and he wants to preserve it for eternity and he wants to conceptualize it, to express it. He wants to... Demonstrate. Demonstrate. Share it. Interesting point. Because part of the creative urge seems to be to share with others. It's not always enough if you're a Shakespeare to leave it within, but rather he wants to formulate it in a way that he can communicate it to other people as well. The greatest creative urges ought to be shared, whether in the area of painting, in the area of the poetic, any area of artistic area of creativity is one that is shared. So now this King David, strikingly, strange human being, he's a warrior at heart, one of the most famous military men in history. He's one who conquers all the battles and preserves, I guess you would say, the great legacy of Israel despite his military success in poetic form. Amazing how he does this. I wouldn't have thought so. I would have thought that this great military warrior is a sensitive poetic personality. Yet he is. He fights numerous battles. Conquering. Slaughtering. And yet this very same person is so sensitive that he reacts, a second, to life's events in a way that few others have ever reacted. David. I'm sorry. Since you brought that up, 
I don't know, but you say, you know, since you brought up the idea that you were surprised that this military person, right, we don't, don't you find that the historical David that's presented in Shemuel and, and Kings, uh, I'm sorry, Shemuel, yeah. Shemuel is, is, is totally the opposite extreme exactly. of this person and it doesn't judge exactly no no that's my that's point that's yeah it exactly is just, right but, uh, well, 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 yeah. what I would say to you is that if you want to understand let's say any of the chapters of Tehillim they have to be seen against the backdrop of Shemuel one of the I would say laughable I don't know how life issues yes thank you it is so fresh that you hear a tape and the person has turned off the tape and the person goes nuts, you know. We're going to go back to what I just said off the tape about another hour, so if you keep on listening. Got him. Yeah, the same idea, right? I learned that. Right, right, right. So now, the crises of life, the issues of life, give me some examples that you would think about that are impactful moments in life. What do you think? near-death experience good and the opposite so let's say that there's two types of near-death ex- experiences right one might be viewed as let's say illness right a person you know, and this is not a um, this is not something which is rare to the contrary you have as many people one could be he calls it near-death okay good and I would say A is illness you know many people have experienced illnesses that could be a near-death experience, or it could be an accident or something like that. Right, something like that, mm-hmm. where all of a sudden the plane rocks to and fro, and it's about to crash, and all of a sudden it works out. And we've all been on planes, we've all had those kinds of experiences, to one degree or other. Sorry? To get into it, to enjoy it. Uh, yeah, not a few, not a few, <laughs> not always. I was just on a plane and it wasn't very happy to me. And you know, and you always say, no, it's not happening. And put on your seatbelt, thinking, put on your seatbelt, and you're going up and down. And you know this possible consequences. So a near-death experience would be a life, could be transforming experience. So you would expect David to have had these either illnesses or any kind of accident or in his particular case a military experience we don't appreciate military experiences we haven't been anybody here been in war oh in my house good you didn't say your wife because no, no. that I would have erased from the tape also right but we having been you know in the army for a week which really wasn't that serious imagine lying flat on the ground and shooting at a target now if you have any kind of imagination I don't know if you have your imagination Linda do you have imagination <laughs> No, it doesn't. Sorry? I hit five for five. That doesn't take imagination. That just takes accuracy. No, no. I really hit three for five, but I imagine. You had 18. You know that we had to shoot? We we had 20 shots. It was terrible. I couldn't wait for my round to end. I'm sweating. I'm I'm drowning. The sand is hot. The sun is burning down. It's 105 degrees. Shoot. Bang. Hit it. Shoot. Bang. I hated it. And I imagine... What if that was a real person over there? I'm killing somebody. I mean, I imagine these things. It was a horrible experience. Imagine carrying it must have been a five-pound gun. It was a heavy gun. Bridging back, I said, I can't get rid of it. How many do I have left? You know, kids think, oh, it's great. I want to go shooting. I hated the experience. 
And it's even in the war game that we played where you're wearing the lasers, I was killing people right and left. And I got killed too. Wasn't that? Did you get killed, Charlie? Yeah. Me too? It was a frightening experience. So we don't have anywhere. Uh, Israel has, every 18-year-old kid has that experience. One of the jarring experiences that we had was we were meeting, we were in a tank command uh, unit the first, couple of, first day or so. And the guy tells us one day later, because of the bombing on uh, Ammunition Hill, because of that bombing, we're going into Gaza. What does that mean? The tanks move out. Which means, we may not see these guys tomorrow morning. Right. They're going. So they're going in, and they're going to they get shot, they get blown up, whatever they we're not going to see them tomorrow morning. That's a reality of every 18, 19 year old kid in Israel. We have no clue as to what that's all about. So David HaMelech, of course, was engaged in military issues, and therefore one would expect to find issues that have to do with warfare. Either positive, he won the war, or negative. Issues of illness. Chapter 6. Or, of course, what other issues you mentioned before? Birth. Birth of a child. Now, we may take, we shouldn't, but the birth of a child as a matter of fact. Imagine how glorious it was, it was, 3,000 years ago, when you don't know the science of biology. What happens? You have this extraordinary experience. Those of you who are not married yet, don't listen. Just turn off. Don't you have don't get, don't get it. Okay, good. You have this amazing, engaging, sexual ecstasy. That's how we're going to describe sex. I, you, Mary, any, none of you guys. Don't listen. Girl, please stop. We're in good You have this amazing, and you're not exactly sure what happens. You don't know the biology. All of a sudden, your wife starts getting heavier and heavier and heavier, and then nine months later, you have a child. You say, wow, how did this happen? We may have lost some of the thrill of what sex and birth is all about because we understand the science behind it, we expect that we know, etc. But in those days, going back to, let's say, Adam, if you want, to go back that far, imagine how that works. No clue. No clue. This happens and it works. Attraction, infatuation, love. No consequence. Physical, no consequence. Fantastic. So David Amel, of course, speaks about the birth of a child in chapter 8, which we'll come back to. The glory of nature. The sensitive soul reacts and relates to nature very differently than we relate and react to nature. They, the poet, see the sunset. He sees the stars. And he glorifies God because of that sight. Which is an, an amazing phenomenon. Love. Love is an overwhelming emotion that those who've been privileged to experience it glory in it. It transforms you. It's magic. Captured by the poet, expressed by the poet in a way that inspires others. So whether we're talking about tragic issues, illness, warfare, accidents, we're talking about birth of a child, which is wonderful, or love, or experiencing the grandeur of nature, all of these life experiences are captured by King David. But not only personal experiences, he also captures national experiences as well. When the nation goes through a traumatic experience, give me an example. War, War as a nation. 9-11. Victory Day. 
Sorry? Sorry. Yeah, it's a problem. As, a, as an issue, as a national Ill, illness, right. Kennedy Sorry? Assassination. Or Kennedy assassination. That which traumatizes a nation, which is so impactful, is captured by a poet and preserved for historical memory. And maybe beyond all of this, any sensitive soul, not all, it's true, but a sensitive soul who sees so much, the poet sees what we don't see. Or better, the poet does in fact see what we see, and he's able to respond to it, react to it, good, conceptual, describe it, good, and that leads him inevitably, I would say, to a philosophical appreciation of what life's really all about. And take this statement and tell me if you think the person behind the statement was a philosopher in some sense. I'm quoting that. Heaven crashed with earth, all the world aflame, but only he who sees removes his shoes. Now, first of all, what does that conjure up in your mind? Burning bush. Burning bush. Excellent. Exactly. Now, Jewish author or non-Jewish, what do you think? Non-Jewish. How do you know? Correct. <laughs> you must know my tricks of the trade. Good. Non-Jewish author. Anybody want to take a stab at it? When, what century do you think it came from? Non-Jewish author, knows the Bible, and yet so spiritualized that he senses this heaven crashed with earth, all the world aflame, but not everybody sees it. Not everybody senses it. Why would you say the world? Yeah. That's what they said. I don't know what that is. Why do they say that? I mean, we could analyze that. But it's, it's Why would you use it? Okay, good. What can analyze? That's a very good point. What can analyze all these parts of the poem? Dickerson, Emily Dickerson, Dickinson, Dickinson, nineteenth century. If I remember correctly, nineteenth century. The Industrial Revolution hiding God's grandeur. Not everybody is seeing it. So a person like this is going to reflect on what's life really all about. If you are so overwhelmed by the birth of a child or by the death of a loved one, you're going to philosophize. So King David as well philosophizes and in the fifth bless you, and in the fifteenth chapter raised the question, what is the ideal life? What's the idea? What characteristics make a person into an ideal person? So the poet, I think inevitably, but maybe not always, one can analyze this, a poet turns into a philosopher, raising philosophical questions. What's the best pathway to travel in life? What does it all mean? But isn't that only based on what the poetry is about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are poems that are not philosophical. Just well, I meant in general in terms of life. In other words, that poem may not be philosophical, but the poem is based on life versus poem is based on others. Which depends what we're talking about. But a poetic soul is somebody who's so sensitive to the winds of life that you end up asking that question. The author of Kohelet, which we'll get to, which is one of the most philosophical of books, also was a poetic soul. So it goes both ways. Daniel. You're saying that David is... Uh like I guess the pinnacle, uh, the number one poetic person ever. Certainly, I didn't make that point. I didn't make that point, but one I think can make that point. So, like most most of the time, when you have like Peterson uh, and Go, all these um, you know artists, uh-huh. are, uh-huh. they always have like not always, but it's, it's unusual. Like Peterson is uh, 
Her husband, now we have to do something with her husband. Because once yeah. she gives birth, so what, what's his first, what's his first, he has a problem, what's his first angle, what should I do? I don't want to kill her husband, what should I do? Bring the husband back from the war and have her asleep with the, with her wife and husband, so that they maybe have a shot with the kid that's born, is not going to be born here in blue eyes like me, whatever it was. Maybe she'll look like Uriah, the child looks like Uriah, and I get away with it. So he tells him, come, Okay, I'm glad how's the war doing? Fine, go back to your wife. I'm not going back to you. Why don't you go back to your wife? Because the Jews, look how saintly he is, Uriah, the husband, and how vile David is. Right? So, he says, I'm not going back. People are fighting a war. I'm not going back to my wife. Yeah, go, back. go back to your wife. I'm not going back to my wife. So, go back to your wife. Go back to my wife. I have a problem. What do I do next? Get him drunk. Come on over. Come to home, get him drunk. Okay, now go to not go back to my wife either. So now what do I do? I have a real problem over here. The only answer is left is killing him. So to the front with instructions, put him at the front of the bed, let him get killed. Right? So now, interesting would be the reflections of this sensitive soul, which you pointed out before, the contrast, and you pointed out, between King David of the book of Samuel and King David of Tehillim. It's one person. So now, the contrast of these two people has to resolve itself. So we know Shemuel, we just told the story, one second. Now the next question is looking at Tehillim Nun Aleph. What are his issues? So let's open up just to get a sense of Tehillim Nun Aleph, one second. Which is on page 51st chapter, Tehillim. Okay, good. 1473, good. Question for us? He's a poet. He's a passionate poet. So when, right. when his passion raises a certain thing, he Good. takes it to a great street. Great point. So he does what he does because right. he's driven and he's passionate or he's obsessed or... Good. That's the name. A makes a very good point that sometimes the seeds of the of poetic creativity can... Can what? Or based on reality. On no, no, based on reality, that's true. Based on experience. No, I'm going beyond. The seeds of poetic creativity can bring forth your own destruction. So now, a person is so given to his passion that he had to express it with this woman. Most of us are more disciplined than that. Hopefully all of us are more disciplined than that. You don't see women and just all of a sudden kill their husbands and... Right? Did everybody say right loud and clear to that one? We all agree with that statement? Right, thank you. Women, you say, I have them all under control. But King David doesn't do that. He allows his passions to express themselves in this very intense fashion. Now, interesting would be, what's his next step? What happens next? Now, interesting is what would happen in, what happens in the book of Samuel. Look at this book of Sam, and then we'll record it over here. Shemuel comes and tells him a story. Natananadi comes, sorry, and what happens? Tells him a story. It's a brilliant, biblical, pedagogic technique. And you should learn this as parents. When you want to teach your kids something, don't lecture them, don't philosophize them. I've made this point a hundred times. Rather, what do you do? You tell your kids a story. Right? Philosophy doesn't work, unless it doesn't work, but tell your kids a story. So, Natan tells the king a story. What's the story? There's this very rich man, fantastically wealthy, very poor man, who had nothing. What does this poor man only have? A simple little sheep. The rich man invites guests over. Invites guests over. Right? And he has to make a feast for his guests. He doesn't use his own food. So he goes and he takes, by force, the sheep of this poor man, shefts it, and serves it. So, King David reacts with intense anger and rage. 
How dare you do this? This is injustice. Because a poetic, passionate person reacts at injustice as well with rage and anger with passion. So he does that. And he says, that man should die. Now that's an intense reaction because at, at worst comes to worst, what should be the punishment of this man? Replace the sheep. Let's put him in jail maybe, the rich man, if you want to do that. What, no, he should die, King David says. He should die. Who is he? So then, in the two most damning words in all of Tanakh, what does Natan say? Ataish. You're the man. And in the text, there's a gap. There's eight, eight words gap. To indicate the silence of how David reacted to, the, to that statement, Ataish. You're the man. You did this. And David, all of a sudden, you sense, you feel the revolution in his own soul such that he's changed. He realizes it. He sees it. So now, what do I do? And he's, he, David should be killed. Hayab Mitah. Because he killed a man. Indirectly, but he killed a person. It, the, and on the other hand, because it's Teshuvah, does not happen. David says, Lord Tamut, you won't die for this. But you're going to pay a price anyway. So that's the narrative of the book of Samuel. But now, at a certain point, is David's own reflection on this very strange incident of my passionate response that got me into trouble and that having experienced what the Navi says, and if you look at page 1473, a good example of a poetic soul reacting. He put it to words. He wants to remember this occasion. When Natan and Avi came, when he came unto Bathsheba, right? God have mercy upon me as, as your kindness, as your faithfulness. Erase my intense transgression. Pesha is my rebellion, my sin that's a rebellion. Cleanse me from my sin, purify me. He feels a physical dirt because of this spiritual transgression. I always see my, my intense sin. Keep a shai on it. I know my sin. It's always in front of me. He is so consumed by guilt. By this. I've sinned against you. I've done evil in your eyes. In this, with the result that you are righteous in your words. You are meritorious in your judgments. So I accept what you've done to me. You punished me. I accept all that. And going on and on, he needs to find purification. And in verse 11, Please hide your face from my sin. Erase my transgression. Create for me a new heart. In verse 12, Live a pure heart. Create for me a new pure heart. Give me a new soul. His heart is sullied, dirtied by his transgression. Don't throw me from you. Don't take away your spirit. He feels abandoned by God, obviously. And he goes on, 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 on. What does God really want? You don't want evil, etc., etc. Look at verse 17, which I pointed out before. You don't want me to give a sacrifice. What's wrong with the sacrifice? Maybe we'll just bring a sacrifice. Write a check to UJA and all he says is forgiven. He says, you don't want that, God. You don't want a sacrifice. And I'll, I'll give it, but you don't want that. What do you really want? Last line. The truest sacrifice, this is what makes this an incredible creation. What is the truest sacrifice? A broken spirit, a broken heart, 
an afflicted heart, God, you will not shame me. Lord Tivzi, you will not shame me. So here's the reaction of a person who has transgressed, a person who has been overwhelmed by the sin that he had committed, and he... Isn't this his passion doing it to him as well? Uh, yeah, I think so. Guilt. Yeah, absolutely. Because guilt. Intense guilt. Himself. Absolutely. His intense guilt. Is, is, he doesn't know what to do now. But He's sinned. He's stressed. Well, what do I do? So anybody that has been involved in any kind of intense transgression and reflects emotionally about it sees King David's reaction to this. How many years passed? Yeah. Between Batsheba and the We don't know. A long time. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Often a poet is not going to, this is an interesting point, is not going to trivialize this poet by providing you with answers. His creation has to stand as it is. He doesn't want to date it as a journal entry. But historically, can we calculate it? No. Interesting is that often enough, I tell this to people all the time, your task when you study Talim is to try to figure out the historical context of what took place in David's life in order for him to write about this. But he doesn't tell us, and you sometimes can, sometimes you cannot. So here we, he tells us when this happened. It's when that time came to him. So presumably this happened, right, the time came, comes to him, the time condemns him, and now he realized the, um, the enormous transgression. And I'm surprised none of you are asking me this next question. Why did the rabbis whitewash it? Oh, no, no, I'm not, no, I'm not worried about that. No, no, no. No, no. Right, that's a show-take type of question. No. No, David sees this only as a, as a sin against God. What about Uriah, the man that he indirectly murdered? What about Bathsheba that he violated? The idea is that you do everything in God's view. I mean, exactly, exactly. God is omnipresent. I know but him. But it's, no, it's more than God knows. It's, it's, I, I'm so dirty by this. So he doesn't apologize, I'm sorry Bathsheba, I'm sorry Uriah, you you're dead, but it's too bad. He doesn't say that at all. His issue now is God as omnipresent is now, and not beyond judgment. It's not an issue, forgive me, because I, I don't want to be judged, I don't want to be punished. This is, I'm so dirty by this, and only you, God, can cleanse me of my transgression. Well, but God No, he pays a price for this. That's correct. He does is, pay a price. That's why this is timeless, because the actual... It is timeless, right. The actual deed and the punishment is... doesn't matter what year or when it happened, it's just... Something that's like, correct. That's why it's a classic, this, a timeless work. So the answer was, we don't really know, because it was very soon answered. Let's look at one or two other chapters of Tehillim, which will give us a perspective as to the beauty of this, of this work. We had looked at uh, chapter 8 last time, and here in chapter 8, page 1419, we tried to figure out again from the context as to when David said this. So he sees something which he wants to glorify God. Hashem Adonino, I want to glorify your name. So what's going to give a person the reason to glorify God's name? Right? Your, your glory is over the heavens. So number one, it's a, a nursing child. Verse 3 tells me about nursing So he just had a baby. And he understands that what would happen to that baby if he if does not have the nursing instinct, it would die. Right? So over here we see from the mouth of that nursing instinct, I see your strength to destroy the enemy. Over here the enemy would be death. That child, if does not have the nursing instinct, would die. So destroy the enemy, death, when I can. When I see your heavens, 
the work of your fingers. When do the heavens, we ask, when do the heavens look like God's work is very sensitive, delicate, and gentle? At night, constellations, stars, finery. When the heavens look so fine, when I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon I see, the stars I see, and what is his reflection on this? Here the, the poet becomes a philosopher. He thinks about what is a human being? What is a human being? Now, again, if you're living in a city and you're subject to the hustle and bustle of cars and taxis and buses and buildings, you don't feel infinitesimally small. If, however, you go out into the desert, as we did, and all around you is just sand and more sand and more sand, mounds of sand and valleys of sand, and you stand alone at night in that desert. Now, we always had company, so it wasn't so scary. And it was... And I had my gun, so I wasn't really worried at all. You do all that now, what do you think? What is a human being? The immensity of just simply an endless desert. Or, if you're sensitive enough, looking up at the sky. And your attention is not captured by what's going on around you, namely the taxes, buses, cars, and buildings. But rather the sky, the heavens, the stars. And you see all of that, you think about, What is a human being? Now, all the more so, if one were to study modern physics and astrophysics, and you, we discussed this, I think, very briefly a couple of times ago, and remember, the hundred million galaxies, knowing that our small, tiny Milky Way galaxy is 100,000 light years, which is, one light year is 5.9 trillion miles. Imagine how much gas takes to go 5.9 trillion miles. 5.9 trillion miles times 100,000 is the length of our small, tiny galaxy, and there are a hundred million other galaxies, a billion, billion stars, all of, them, all of whom have, some have, planets. So that's talking about what God created, that's the world out there. So your answer has to be, Minos Kikis Kerenum. I mentioned to you last time, maybe I mentioned to you, we have a class in Shul during the winters that's restricted. You have to get written permission to come to the class. And so science and religion, sorry? From your mother? From your, mother. From your dentist. <laughs> and, you know, it's true. I, I don't want everybody to come to that class. And we deal with science and religion. So part of what I do is I start every class I've been doing the last seven or eight years is just simply facts of the universe. Facts of the universe. You've heard it? Uh-oh. So I'm... Okay. Science and religion. Yeah. I don't know if you had the censored one or the real one. I, I, I don't know the one that's here, right? So, for example, everybody knows that our planet called Earth revolves every 24 hours. We all know that it revolves around the sun every year, correct? What you don't know is that the entire solar system actually moves 11 million miles per day. And then 150 million years, I think it's years, it's going to travel around the entire universe. No, not, no, 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 only the Milky Way galaxy. Right, so it's over here, and it's traveling, the whole solar system is moving. The whole solar, you're all moving, you're all moving. 11 million miles per day, and 100 million years can travel to circumference and come back to this point again. It's an extraordinary statement. How many? 150 million years. If I remember correctly, yeah. So, that should awaken you the sense, What is the human being who experiences... Sorry? Hasn't made it around once yet. Of course it has. Several times. Our son is 4 billion years old. 
four billion with a lifespan of eight billion. So yeah. Men we have. have not been No, man, of course not, right. Yeah. So yeah, it could happen. Try to market that, you know. <laughs> I get the beach club. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So when you say that minus get to skidano, this is a thought of a person, philosophical thought, three thousand years ago, which would be so current and appropriate for a person living today. Where a person is going to say over here what is a human being that you take note of him and a man that you are concerned with him the immensity of the universe is so overwhelming that we have to have that thought and yet uh, the answer to that question in verse 6 you've made him a little less than divine because we're the only thinking beings no, that we know of <laughs> right that's astounding you could understand the magnitude of all of that that's the whole issue because there's a lot of people a lot of people a lot of uh, uh, life that exists that does not get that concept doesn't of course know. absolutely correct yeah absolutely and more than that David Melech says the you have clothed that human being with glory and dignity so his understanding of human being 3,000 years ago is that you are a dignified human being you have glory about you you are Selim Elohim you just no it says just Slightly less than divine, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is again the poet turned philosopher. Given man rule, etc., etc. So here in this eighth chapter, we've seen how the poet responds to A, birth. He sees a nursing child. And B, he sees the universe as overwhelming and responds philosophically by saying what is really human being and yet a human being has an infinite dignity about him that you God have given to that person so that does make this an extraordinary chapter again of the finest of world literature of the finest of world literature if we look at say Tehilim Tedvav 15 you will find over here David raising another philosophical question what is the virtuous life what values should one have and he says who can dwell notice how he puts this in his own context we don't know when in life he said this but he's reflecting who shall dwell in your tent who shall dwell on your holy mountain meaning obviously only a virtuous person who has the following characteristics would be able to dwell in God's tent on God's holy mountain and then he enumerates verse 2 he who walks tamim with integrity with a whole heart who does deeds of righteousness always speaks the truth never speaks evil about any other person never shames another person he he is disgusted by he 15 by he who is shamed and yet he respects those who respect God, who stand off God, he swears to something that's maybe negative. He never changes it because he's a man of integrity. He never did, interesting now, next is that he never takes interest in money. That was a must have been a very powerful value going back three thousand years that just didn't do that. It was viewed as a very bad form to take interest in money. And never take bribery. Whoever does this shall never be shaken, but rather is somebody firmly rooted. So you can't and, and reflect and think about all of these values. This is what the virtuous personality has to embody. These are his characteristics. Right? It's just interesting Please, to can. note on that. 
Mm-hmm. Just a side point that in Christian Europe, the reason why the Jews, one of the reasons why yeah, the Jews course. ended up as the moneylenders, because the Christians took that value wholeheartedly. They would not lend to their brothers yeah, on interest, so they let the Jews do it. And they did it in order to vilify the Jews. Right. It was well, one way of creating the tension between Jew and non Jew. But in Venice, it wasn't. Venice yeah, that's a little bit different. Little Correct, more, yeah. Uh, saying yeah. it was created just to do that? Or yeah. That? No, the, the, the Christians it, took this value. Well, yeah. No, that's not what the Muslims are. No, I'm not disagreeing. I'm disagreeing. I'm adding to it. He's just adding to it. Yeah. But it's interesting that they took this seriously. Oh, absolutely. And we made the pros bold. Is that the right? Right. Right. Yes, that's 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 true. Yeah, that's true. That has to be true. Right. If you look at verse 20, chapter 20, page 1433, we say this every day. And again, you want to analyze it. And again, coming back to Chucky's point, Chucky, I want to try to figure out what over here is the context. He's experiencing some kind of crisis. God shall answer you on a day of crisis. The name of Jacob's God shall keep you safe, uplift you. Let him send you your help from the holy sanctuary, from Zion. He shall help you. He shall remember all of your offerings, your minha offerings, and all of your whole animal burnt sacrifices. Let him give you what your heart wants and all that you need to fill. We shall be going your transgression, and in the name of God we shall go forward. God shall fulfill all of your desires, of your wishes. Now I know that God shall give me, shall... Your victory. So what is this issue over here? What is the day of crisis? What is he worried about? To keep on going below, he's talking about a military context. He's losing the war. The day of crisis. And he's praying for victory over here. And the last three verses, he tries to hope he's going to have victory. They're coming with chariots. They're coming with horses. We're going to the name of God. They shall fall. We shall go up and be encouraged. God shall save us. God shall answer us on the day that we call. So this is a military crisis. National emergency, losing the war, it's a day of difficulty and hardship, and here King David prays that he shall have victory over here. Look at Chile now, Kaf Gimel 23, one of the most challenging of chapters, and one of the most well-known. The Lord is my shepherd, again made famous by Christian literature, right? God is my shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing. Again, try to think of the context. Is this military? Probably not. What happened over here that he's concerned? He makes me lie down in greener pastures. He leads me to water in place of repose, a nice translation. He renews my life. He guides me in the right paths, to benefit his name. Though I walk in the valley of the deepest darkness... Betzer begin in the valley of death. Uh, interesting, of course, that the word Salmavit, which is the Hebrew over here, you know it as valley of death, shadow of death. Why? Because most biblical commentaries seem to say shadow of death. However, new philological research sees this as the word Salmavit as Selem, which means darkness, or deepest darkness. So new philology, this is based on the new philology, which is the deepest darkness, rather shadow of death. 
So if you read other English translations... You'll find a different translation. If you read the older translations, yeah. This is based on Nachum Sarno, a professor of mine. Of course, explain this to me. This is not my idea. It's his idea. And he's the one who translated this. Nachum Sarno. So, new philology we found probably it's a Ugaritic or an Akkadian word. Probably it's a Ugaritic word. And the word Salik Lamin in Ugaritic, if I'm not mistaken, this is 25, 30 years ago, Tell me deepest darkness, and that's why he chose to translate this as the as the uh, deepest darkness, right? Deepest darkness, right? Deepest darkness, valley, valley of valley of deepest darkness, right? Including both. Yeah, valley would be would be ge. The word ge means valley, and telmavit means the most intense form of darkness. It's not death, which earlier commentaries. The medievals probably said. This as deepest darkness as uh, death. On the oh, what is he saying? Deep shadow deep of the, the valley of the shadow of Right. That means it was a popularly known translation that he didn't want to include because it was really wrong. So is he using it as like instead of having any fear and being in the, in the place of darkness, your security because God is with you? Is that how he? Yeah. So the question is, where is he really right now? And it's interesting because that word really changes the entire meaning of the whole thing. Okay. Good. Is it a question of sickness and is that the gates of death? Or, when I walk in the valley of deepest darkness, what valley is that? Is he just walking someplace that he's really he afraid about? Could be. Is he running away from Shaul? Let's see. I will not fear. You are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. Good. What's happening? Is he about to die? Illness? Well, if this word means... Anything. Sorry? Any, any situation where you have fear. Okay, good. Correct. Okay, good. So that's what it seems to be. Then your, t- your spread table for me will be my enemies. Now his enemies, if he's ill, his enemy is the illness. Right. Remember that he, those people trade illness as an enemy. That doesn't mean a guy with a bone out is going to shoot you now. That would not be the ancient concept of enemy. Enemy was that bone out, but it's also any illness which you don't understand. If you don't know about germs, and all of a sudden you're sick, you feel it's an enemy of somebody else praying for your no, death and illness. Right. Right. You read on, I think it's Shaul. Okay. It's a metaphor. It's, okay, good. It could be for he's running right from Shaul. Because he says that I'm anointed. Okay, okay, good, hold on. But Shiro Shiko say you have anointed my head with oil. So this could be good. It's a good example. He's already, he's already anointed by Samuel to become king. Good. And then it says, Tov the Hesed Yedefuni. Shall presume. Only goodness. Goodness and steadfast love shall presume me. Right. Versus. They're pursuing him now to kill right. him. Very good. Okay, so that could be what this is all about. Of course, it's taken has its own life as to what it became in terms of the liturgy and things like that, but this could be, David's analysis is a good one, this could be reflected of that. So here what we've seen, I just want to look at one more, the 13th chapter, which I think is an extraordinary one, 13th page, 1424. Uh, am I going too fast? Don't know when it's at the same time. We're okay? I had a question about the tenses. You don't want to know what tenses right now. I don't want to talk about it. No. Not at 9.31. We'll come back to it sometime. On chapter 13, 14.24, what does he feel? Besides the opening superscription of putting it to music, How long, O God, will you... Forget me forever? Will you forget me forever? At Anna, for how long shall you hide your face from me? What is he feeling? Neglected, sorry? God left him. That he's losing on every level. Exactly. Now, here's an interesting question. Are any of us, has any of us ever been subject 
to this kind of feeling where you feel so bereft, so alone, so lonely that even God Himself you feel has abandoned you. Now that's a double-edged question because to feel that God has abandoned you means that you, are, that you ordinarily are so intimate with God that you always feel God's presence close. So we may not feel bereft of God because we don't feel so close to God. But he who, as a poet said of soul, felt so close to God that the slightest jarring of that relationship means that he feels emptied of God and he feels God has forgotten him. And he's praying. Now the irony is, let me see the irony in the first line, first two lines. <clears throat> Oh, what do you mean? Well, and, and Hashem, how long will you ignore me forever? How long will you ignore me forever? Answering the question. It's a rhetorical question. Forever. If God had left him, then why is he praying, talking to God? So what is he saying really over here? Intellectually, he knows that God does not leave anybody ever. But existentially, experientially, he feels abandoned by God. No. So here you have heart and mind. But a, but a big com- prophetic concept was Hester Panim. So how big was it? Very big. Throughout the Nevi'im. 33 times. Okay, so... That's not very big. In the entire Bible, it's only 31 times, actually. Twice in the Bible. I did a paper on it, so I know it about really well. Hester Panim and Take it back. Take it back. Take it back. It's not even... Make believe... Wait a minute. Can we erase that? No, it's there. Too bad. You're stuck. Watch it today. It appears 31 times tonight, twice in the book of Devarim. Not in Beshit Shemov Eka and Bimibad at all. Only... I'll say only twice there. And it appears 29 times throughout the rest of the prophetic books. And Ketuvim. Most in the book of Tehillim. If I remember correctly. So, Hesepanim is... an interesting concept and it's been used to explain the Holocaust by Martin Buber the Eclipse of God and many have used that concept but it's not interestingly enough as you pointed out it's not a very prominent or powerful theme in the Bible in other words God does not appear to hide his face from very many people men, much of the time it's very rare as a matter of fact it's, it's pretty rare so it's, again 31 it's times reasons that we don't understand I'm sorry? So it's just reasons that we don't understand. Yeah. Why those yeah. things happen. Yeah, that's another question which we'll get to a little while later. But yeah, neglected. I don't want to get all crazy. John Levinson points out that the prophet's understanding of it is he calls God back. He's only calling God back. That's what that's what's going on over here. Even even in those situations oh, yeah. when God's face is hidden, right. it doesn't mean he's not you know, he can't be besieged. Yeah, of the course. Prophets, the prophets don't intellectually ask why. know. No, they don't correct. ask why. They say, Come and take care of this, please. Right. These right. guys are killing me and you're not here, just come back. So, right. So that, no, my point you're right. My point is that intellectually you could still pray even when you feel abandoned. Your heart feels alone, but intellectually you know that God is still there. So you're right. That yes, you can still pray and bring God back. We're saying the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. So here he feels abandoned. So why does he feel abandoned? There's two possibilities. One is he sinned. You feel abandoned when you sin. God is no longer speaking to you. Do we see any note of sin over here? Oh, maybe that's a consequence of his sin. Uh, agreed, yeah, but you see, they say sin over here. Look at verse, Ananas, look at how long will I carry in my mind, grief in my heart all day. That's still the, still the problem. How long will enemy have the upper hand? We're not sure whose enemy is over here. It doesn't mean physical enemy. It could be a psychological depression. It doesn't mean just 
means the, that which is pursuing him. Look at me, ask me, O Lord, O my God. Restore lust to my eyes. Why? What does restore lust to my eyes mean? His eyes are closing. Is it illness? Okay, good. Could be illness. So that's the sleep of death. So is he close to death? It's illness, right? So that my sickness does not overcome me, my foes are my title. I trust in you. Your faithfulness, my house, and your deliverance, send to the Lord, for he has been good to me. That's called prophetic path, that you expect God to respond, and therefore you're willing to say, use the, this very powerful statement, I believe it's going to happen. Thank so you now, sorry? Right. Thank you. Right, correct. So now, that could be an illness issue, or it could be simply the notion that nobody can maintain intensity of faith in God for any long period of time. Inevitably, the more intense you feel and are close and associated with God, that's going to create a cause at a certain point in time that feeling of abandonment. Because one cannot maintain that intensity of emunah b'Hashem, of faith in God. This might be simply part of the sine curve. Whereas, if one sees faith, there are high points and low points. A high point when you have the growth of a child, you feel very close to God. A low point when something else happens to you. Or maybe it's not even related to events in life. Just intense emotional connection to God is going to inevitably lead to a downturn. Nobody can sustain intense emotion, whether it's love or faith in God, whatever it may be. You can have moments of passion and moments of neglect. So here, when he's feeling so abandoned, he takes this emotion, takes this feeling, puts it into words, and records something that can serve as an inspiration to somebody else. One of the beauties of the book of Tehillim is that when one reads this, if one is suffering from some, whether it's illness, whether it's defeat, whether it's abandonment from God, chapter 9 talks about the death of a child. God forbid that it should happen to anybody. It's, a, it's the most overwhelming, of course, of human experiences. Um, when it's opened up over here, Almut Laben Zmor David. Of course, there are different meanings to this, but David did lose a child. What child did David lose? No! The child of. Bacheva, uh, right. He lost a Shalom as well, that's true. I don't know if he would say this. If we go through this whole entire thing, would he say this when he lost a Shalom? It's a, good, it's a good question, I don't know. But certainly, when, he, when you look at the book of Samuel, when Bacheva gives birth, and David's told this child shall die, he falls apart. He begs, he cries, he, he says, Shiva. The child didn't die yet. But he tears his clothes and he's on the floor, he's not eating. And his servants say to him, as the book of Samuel records, that when the child does die, God says, he has to die. This child, interesting question, this is one of the, the 30 in the morning, why does this child have to die? Child's innocent, obviously. Yeah, it's, it seems almost like, uh, he's born out of sin. Uh, vicarious, right. vicarious, uh, uh, a punishment. Yeah, yeah this is very strange. And his servants say when he dies, his servants say to him, how can we tell him? If he mourn this way when the child was living, What's going to happen? So I'm going to see him. Where's the rest of the entourage? Where's all the kids? Oh. Home? Where's the directions? Different directions. Well, I'm glad you found the right direction. <laughs> Good story. So the servants say to him, what are we going to tell What are we going to respond to him now? He will more, more intensely fall apart. He did fall apart. So what happened? The opposite happened. Why? The beauty of the moment says, yeah. He says, well, I cried and I prayed and I tore my clothes and lay on the, on the ground. Well, I hoped God would have compassion. But He didn't. Now what could I do? 
He dresses, he washes, he eats. It's over. So, one interesting question that one can raise when one studies the book of Tehillim is, does it in fact comfort? If one experiences that tragic loss, or the birth of a child, or any of these issues that we spoke about, if one needs an outlet, and one cannot express it verbally, and yet one does find comfort in the spoken word, one of the great profound truths of the biblical writings is that the spoken word is comforting. In Arabic we say, fish elbow. Fish elbow. What does that mean? Pull your heart out. Fish, pull your heart out. Because there is, there is something almost cathartic about speaking about your, your issues, whatever it may be. So, if that is in fact the case, which uh, in the book of Yob actually talks about that issue, where somebody says, I speak that I, may, that I may find relief. The spoken word provides relief. So, if one does not have to speak or cannot do so, what does this serve for you? It becomes the vessel in which you can pour your emotions and it formulates the ideas for you and thereby you can achieve relief by virtue of that word. This becomes what you might call a prayer of expression or a prayer of empathy. Which means either that you could formulate it and express it or you empathize so closely with it that it serves as a means that you can express what you need to express. So you empathize with what's going on there. So each one of these chapters of Tehillim, again, is the reaction that he has to divine events in life. Birth is going from here to God. It's not prophetic from God down here. It's coming from a human being to God. It's a human being responding to life's issues. God's the backdrop. God's omnipresent. Everything happens is related to God. Illness, birth of a child, defeat in war, Yom Sarah, feeling abandoned by God, the virtuous life, the philosophical question. All of this is what Tehillim is about. So your challenge is, is that when you open the book of Tehillim, figure out exactly not only how he expresses it, that's your point before, what verbal tenses and what metaphors and what analogies does he use to express this, but also what's the historical or life backdrop to this chapter. Don't simply recite it by rote. Rather, what you want to know is what's going on over here. What is churning in King David's soul that he produced this poetic expression? This is the book of Tehillim. Right? So it's a significant and, again, one of the most expressive and brilliant creations in all of Tanakh and all of world literature. What we want to do now is we'll stop over here now. We want to just, next week, we want to speak of the book of Proverbs and then the book of Job. <clears throat> we have, I think, one or two more sessions. And in those one or two more sessions, next two weeks, I suppose it to be, we'll finish out the rest of the biblical books. Mishle and Eeyore. Book of Proverbs, book of Job. If you want to do a little reading, just read the first chapter of Mishle and read the first two chapters of Job to figure out what these books are about. You have a three-minute break, and then we go to the next class. Thank you. <coughs>